Hello to all of our little dreidels out there. Welcome to another episode of Sink or Swim. My name is Lexi. And I'm Summer. And today we have a guest with us and... I'm Heidi. Thanks Heidi for joining us today. So we are going to do a little bit of a different podcast today. A lot of our podcasts in the past have been focused on women's health, but today we're going to mix in a little mental health and psychiatry as well. Mix it up. Mix it up. So we have Heidi here who is very interested in psychiatry and we will let her introduce herself a little bit more to you all. So Heidi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm Heidi. I'm in the same class as Lexi and Summer. I'm currently applying psychiatry. I came into medicine like dead set on doing emergency medicine, but then during my third year rotation, just fell in love with psychiatry, and I've been on that train ever since. It's funny how things change like that. I remember when Heidi was all gung-ho on EM. I know. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. So what kind of, when did you know you wanted to do psychiatry and not emergency medicine? So there are actually like two separate events. Um, I realized pretty early on I didn't want to do emergency medicine after like spending a little more time in the ER and just seeing like kind of the chaos that ensues. (laughs) It was not for me. And then um, I figured out a little bit later that I wanted to do psychiatry. The process for that was more like I just was so excited every day to go into my rotation and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the patient population. It's always something different. It's always something new. Like you never know what people are going to say to you. You never know what your patient's coming in for. Um, And I like the diversity. Like you can have 10 patients with bipolar and three of them are manic and seven of them are depressed and they all look different. So chaotic, but uh, chaotic good. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you like chaotic environments. Maybe just not in the emergency room. Yeah, I think the emergency room, much like the OR, is just chaotic bad. (laughs) You like chaotic good. (laughs) All right. So any other reason why you decided to go into psychiatry, anything that really uh, drew you in? Are you leading me to an answer that you want? No. (laughs) I'm just joking. Um, Yeah, so I really like the patient population. I've always been really um, passionate about working with underserved and marginalized communities. And unfortunately, mental health is still something that's very stigmatized and a thing that a lot of people face and end up facing alone and can also undervalue other things that they're experiencing. So I find a lot of joy and fulfillment in working with people and helping advocate for them and helping people gain back parts of their life that they've lost. Um, You know, like watching someone kind of stabilize after an acute psychotic episode and kind of come back around and be able to reconnect with their family members or watching someone surface from a depression you get to give them a lot of parts of their life back that they've lost in a way that you don't necessarily always get to do in other forms of medicine that's awesome and for those that don't really know Heidi that well she's a true psych rock star and advocates a lot for her patients wow thank you yeah absolutely so Um, can you, so last segment or the segment before that, we gave a little bit of background on each of our third year rotations, psychiatry included, and we also talked about some tips. Um, can you maybe just describe your third year rotation? You were at a different site than we were. And, um, yeah. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about that? Uh, just my psychiatry rotation? Yeah. Perfect. So I did my psychiatry rotation at HCA Aventura and I had a, a blast. I think the thing that you'll really benefit from from being at HCA Aventura is they have a lot of diversity. So they have a geriatrics unit, they have like a high acuity unit with patients who are, you know, 
um, a little more aggressive a lot of, or experiencing psychosis or mania, something like that. Then a low acuity unit with people who are usually more stabilized, people with more suicidality, depression, um, things of that nature. And you'll also get exposed to consult liaison where you get to go and see medical patients who might be facing a psychiatric issue or someone who we need to determine if they have an um, primary psychiatric issue or some mental um, symptoms being caused by a more organic or biological uh, pathology. And then you also will get a little exposure to ECT. Um, As far as tips go, psychiatry can be a really chill rotation, which is great if you don't want to do psychiatry. You often have like really nice hours. You can get out really early. But in the same vein, if you're interested in psychiatry, it's going to be, you'll get out of it what you put into it. So if it's something you want to do, even if they're trying to send you home at like noon, offer to stick around, offer to write some notes, try to like get a little more involved, express that you're interested in psychiatry so they know that you want to stick around and you're not just like trying to be a gunner Um, and really work hard to get you know the most out of it. Try to see a really wide variety of patients. They'll have that available. So try not to stick to just one patient population and really divvy it up. Awesome. That's some great advice. Any tips specifically for staying safe and doing well in your rotation? (laughs) So staying safe, um, you will get a crash course or you should get a crash course in patient safety or personal safety on the milieu. Um, But usually that's like several months before your actual rotation. So some things to remember are just always stand between the patient and the exit. You never want to have your back to a wall in a sense where you're not able to escape if a patient is to become aggravated. Remember that patients who are dealing with psychosis are not fully aware of what they're doing, so they may act unpredictably or um, in a way that you wouldn't expect a person who's fully oriented to behave. So there is a level of danger. Just pay a lot of attention to people's body language. You know, people typically when they start getting upset, they'll posture up, they might look a little more you know, aggressive, they might start shutting down, they might might tell you that they don't want to continue the conversation. So be really sure to use the clues. And then on top of that, always be really nice to your techs and kind of keep in good communication with your techs. If a patient's getting aggravated, you know, maybe look over your corner, make eye contact with a tech so they know that you might need help. Um, But most importantly, just make sure you always have a quick escape route and you're paying a lot of attention. Nice. And so from what I remember of psychiatry, there was also a lot of different vocab, especially like when it came to like the uh, mental status exam and stuff. Do you have any tips for incoming third years about how to prepare in terms of like presentation and also just kind of learning all the jargon that you're or the terms that you're going to need to know for psychiatry? Sure. So it's definitely a little different, right? Because we don't have a physical exam. We have like a mental status exam. And some of the words in them can be, like you're saying, not super intuitive. So there's a lot of different options. The way that I learned was paying a lot of attention in my psychiatry block or in brain, body, and behavior, and then trying to like go online and look up you know, mental status exam, what words can be used, what are the parts of the mental status exam. But most importantly, like just ask questions. Most psychiatry residents are super friendly. A lot of them really want to teach. So when you start trying to kind of split hairs on what does one word mean versus the other, even though they seem to be very similar. Um, a lot of times that's something that's just based on clinical experience. And we as students don't have a ton of that. So feel free to like rely on your, your residents, ask questions. Um, you know, remember that some of the words that 
we use in these situations may be words we use in like normal nomenclature, but they don't mean the same thing. So for example, we use bizarre all the time. Like, well, I guess it's kind of falling out of favor, but like in normal <laughs> speech, like people say, oh, like that's super bizarre. But when we're talking about a patient and we use the word bizarre, it's not like a condescending thing. It's just a way to describe their behavior as erratic, abnormal, unpredictable. Um, and it's an indicator for psychosis. So remember, the words we use in a mental status exam are often indicators for what pathology we think that they have. So, if, you know, try to make those connections, find the patterns and ask questions. And on the topic of commonly discussed uh, terms and and other topics, is there anything specifically that you were pimped on a lot that you think would be important to know prior? Oh, man. So when it comes to pimping on psychiatry, you're going to have kind of two main areas that they're going to do it. And I think one being the strongest, which is there's just so much farm. So make sure you really understand your psychopharmacology. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, there's different books, but but honestly, who reads a book anymore? So like go to Amboss or go to whatever, you know, resource that you find your favorite and you should be able to find information there. Up to date can be really helpful. So definitely know your farm. I think that's the thing I was asked about the most. And then on top of that, you know, they might ask you about differences between similar um, pathologies. So, you know, in, in psychiatry, a lot of times the way we differentiate one thing from the other is kind of the order of events. So if someone has, uh, for example, schizoaffective versus bipolar with psychotic features, you know, if someone is manic and when they're manic, they have some type of psychosis, but they also have mania without psychosis and they also have depression without psychosis, they're bipolar with psychotic features. But if someone is only having mood symptoms when they're also having psychotic symptoms, that's when we start thinking about schizoaffective. So really consider these things and look into the nuances of different but similar pathologies and know the differences and how they present. Yeah, I remember it being really hard to distinguish some of those things, so I'm happy you explained it a little bit. Happy I could help. Yeah, so then in terms of studying for the shelf exam, is there anything you thought was particularly helpful? Uh, I was really lucky. I had amazing residents that really loved to teach, so I actually learned quite a bit um, on the floor and in my rotation. On top of that, I've always been someone who just really heavily relies on questions. So I did all of UWorld. I did a lot of the practice and BME exams. And when you're going through them, it's just really important to understand why the other answers are wrong. Like sometimes it can be easy to pick the right answer, but like really try to understand why it wasn't a different answer, especially when it comes to some of these similar pathologies like schizoaffective and bipolar with psychotic features or something like that. Just make sure you're really looking into it, understanding the nuances of why one question is right or why, why another one's wrong. Really know your farm. Um, but yeah, I mostly just use questions. That's great. And so say somebody has gotten through their third year and they've decided that they're really interested in psychiatry just like you. Um, when it comes to applying to residency, do you have any um, pieces of wisdom or advice that stand out that's specific to psychiatry? So we haven't matched yet. So I don't know if anything I'm doing is working. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's very fair. Maybe just um, um, some help with the process in general. Sure. So I would just say, I'm, I'm more just joking, but um, I would just say, understand that psychiatry is very different in the way that we apply, the way that we interview, the way that you write your personal statement. It's not um, necessarily the most competitive field, but because it's not super competitive, you know, it is growing in popularity. It is becoming more competitive. 
but they they know like you know it's not a secret that we don't have the highest board scores or the highest this that or the other so in that it's really important to show a dedication to psychiatry so show that you've done research show that you've been in interest groups show that you've done you know x y and z extracurricular that contributes to your psychiatric interest you want to show some type of dedication to the field so that they don't think oh this student just like didn't do well and psychiatry is like a good default but you know to be honest we're seeing a lot less of that anyway because it's becoming a more competitive field so also follow the trends understand that more and more people are going into psychiatry it's becoming more competitive um and then in terms of your application having really strong letters of recommendation is really important for psychiatry because so much of a good psychiatrist is how they interact with others and less about their board scores so you want really good letters of rec you want really good evals on all of your clinical rotations especially psychiatry and especially im because those are the kind of the ones you do the most of um, in your psychiatry residency and then when you write your personal statement just remember that it's not so much as other other um, specialties where it's like you know i did this and then i realized this is what i wanted to do and then this is all the things that i've done and all the papers i publish or like whatever it it typically is a little more like um more like creative or like more abstract in your connections you want to show more of your personality it's less about like showcasing the strongest parts of your application and more about showcasing your personality so um you know try to be creative try to be personable and then when you get on your rotations just or on your interviews just remember you're interviewing with psychiatrists so (laughs) the good news is there a lot of them are super nice and the interviews are really friendly the flip side of that is just like make sure you know what you're saying (laughs) And so if you don't mind us asking, what were some of the things that you think showed a dedication to psychiatry on your app? Sure. So this was actually an area where I kind of struggled because I was late to the late to the jump with psychiatry. It was something I didn't figure out I wanted to do until third year. Lucky for me, I really should have seen the writing on the wall. So I was a peer mentor in undergrad and got some counseling training. I did HIV testing and counseling where I was trained in therapeutic conversation with for people who were recently diagnosed with HIV. Um... I had, before I started med school, a few different mental health first aid certificates and suicide prevention certificates, and then I tried to continue that into my medical school education as well. So I serve as a peer mentor now. Um, When I figured out that I wanted to go into psych, I got involved with some psych research. I also um, became the secretary of our psych interest group and tried to really beef up this later half of my Um, application in terms of psychiatry to show like okay once I found this I really dedicated myself to it so I got involved in a lot of projects I got involved in the interest group I got like two or three more certifications in mental health first aid and suicide prevention and things like that so they I could you know in my interview say I found this out in third year luckily there were some things that led me to this but most importantly after I figured out my passion for this I like really dove in I think that's so funny that and you're right you like saw the writing on the wall or didn't see it until later because I feel like knowing you since the first year of medical school in the back of my head I always thought like oh I think maybe she'd be a good psychiatrist I don't know if I actually ever said that but just because like I don't know I feel like it's not my place to influence other people's decisions on their specialties and stuff but I think it's fine and I think now it's so fitting to you that I can't imagine seeing you do literally anything else I 100% agree. I think looking back, we all should have known that Heidi would go into psych just because of the way she acted since day one. Yeah, it definitely was like the big response that I got when I started telling people was, 
Well, like, yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> or like some people were like, I thought that's what you wanted to do the whole time. <laughs> so um, it was, a lot of people saw it coming, but it, I was blinded to it. So Heidi is notorious for making connections with people she meets in random places. <laughs> like, you know, the rest of us will just be walking, going on our merry way. And before you know it, Heidi's invited to the next person's Christmas party. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so we talked a little bit about your third year rotation, tips for your third year rotation. We talked about applying for residency, briefly touched on interviews, which we're probably not the best to give advice on that just yet because we're still going through it. But if you're just kind of looking ahead, what are some options of fellowship or potential career options that you could have in psychiatry that you're aware of? Yeah, so psych is super fun, and then it's like very create your own adventure. There's so much that you can do within the field, and it's a really rapidly growing field because it's still an area where, first of all, it was super stigmatized for a long time, so not a ton of research was done. And now that we're working on destigmatizing the field, we're doing a lot more research. Um, in addition to that, it's just an area that is inherently kind of not super well understood. And we're working really hard now to understand it. So it's a growing field. There's a lot of different aspects you can go into. It's a changing field. So as far as fellowships go, I could be wrong. I think I'm right. There's, I think, five accredited like ACGME fellowships. And they're addiction psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, which is two years long, but you can fast track into. So instead of doing your fourth year of residency, you start your child and adolescence first um, and your fourth year. So you kind of just skip the last year of residency and jump straight into your first year of fellowship. So addiction, child and adolescent, geriatric psychiatry, um, consultant liaison psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. There's some other areas that people subspecialize in that aren't necessarily um, accredited fellowships, but have like been working their way there which are, you know, neuromodulation or interventional psychiatry, which is the use of um, ECT, TMS, deep brain stimulation, ketamine, and now slowly some research in psychedelics and things like that. Some more interventional radio or interventional psychiatry. Um, and then some areas like women's health psychiatry or women's mental health. And, um, you know, it's a growing field. So there's things that are coming on. I think those are all five of the major fellowships, but I could be wrong. And are there any of those fellowships that you're interested in or are you still keeping options open at this point? So right now I'm really trying to allow myself to just be super excited and, and enjoy like not knowing. Um, I do have a strong interest in forensic psychiatry, particularly just because um, incarcerated individuals are already really stigmatized and mental health and incarceration have a huge overlap. So a lot of the incarcerated population do have some type of mental health disorder. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done there from a social justice point of view um, and a lot of work to be done there to kind of help better these people's lives and try to reduce uh, rates of recidivism or reincarceration after they get out um, or prevent incarceration in entirely. So I think that's really interesting. I also find it really interesting just studying what leads a person to commit a crime um, and understanding the way the brain works in that sense. Um, I also... I did a child and adolescent rotation that I enjoyed, but it's a little harder because a lot of it is just like circumstantial. Like you're just a kid with a really bad like deck of cards, basically. Yeah. And it tends to be a little bit less hard psychiatry. There is for sure some like true like pathology, but a lot of it can be a product of circumstances. Um, 
and it's tough too because then you're dealing with parents you're dealing with child protective services so on and so forth i do have an interest in neuromodulation but right now that's not like a accredited fellowship so i could do extra study in it but it wouldn't necessarily be acogme accredited so forensic psychiatry that is accredited how long is that fellowship and are there many fellowships for that um i believe that it is just one year um and i don't know how many programs there are there's quite a few and a large part of the training in it is like understanding you know or determining competence um and then doing evaluations and seeing if you know a mental health disorder played a role in a crime and serving as like an expert witness and stuff like that but it's kind of a small field so that sounds really interesting it does it seems yeah i feel like there's probably a lot of tv shows that maybe kind of touch on that but like probably don't get it right i'm imagining or yeah i think that even a lot of people in medicine don't get it right like it's something i didn't really have a good understanding of until um i kind of expressed an interest in it and got to talk to some psychiatrists but it's not quite of a intuitive field as it feels like oh like it's forensics so i just get to help solve crimes like it's not quite so idyllic Mm, that makes sense makes sense Heidi, it's interesting you mentioned mental health and incarceration and how those two interplay with each other. Summer and I actually did a case report on a patient whose pathology was likely worsened because he was incarcerated and had a delay in care. Oh, what was his pathology? So this was an interesting one. So he actually had cocaine-induced bowel ischemia and perforation. So he ingested a lot of cocaine, and because of that, the, um, the bowel essentially perforated and he became septic and it was an emergency surgery but the kicker was that while he was incarcerated he had been complaining of the pain for several days and because you know these centers are understaffed and you know there's so many people in the center he had a really hard time getting someone to listen to him and take him to the hospital for sure funding is a huge issue and so is kind of implicit bias when we have people who are dealing or struggling with a substance use disorder and are complaining of pain, it's kind of easy for people to be like, oh, okay, like you're just looking for, you know, some type of pain medication, some type of opioid or something like that. Um, So implicit bias is like a huge issue here. And on top of that, so it's funding, it's hard to get funding in, you know, the mental health field, especially in a um, jail or prison setting. Absolutely. Yeah, so Heidi, thank you so much for um, telling us a little bit more about psychiatry. If you guys want to know any more, I'm sure she'd be happy to answer your questions. Um, but would we like to take a quick little drink break and then maybe we'll move on to the second segment of our podcast where we're going to talk about kind of the overlap in mental health between, you know, psychiatry and women's health. Um, so before we get to that, do we want to talk about our drinks and have a little coffee break? Yeah. So Heidi, usually we go through what drink we're drinking what the ingredients that are, and how we rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. So tell us what you're drinking. Heidi has several drinks on the table. Yeah, I'm a beverage person. I like <laughs> I like to have options. So I have um, just a good old carbonated water, which is very simple. Um, it was less less impressive of a sound than we thought it would be. But So it's just water <laughs> with carbon. But it's I spicy never, water. Yeah, yeah I never it's spicy the water. of that. Um... I just don't think you're fun enough. Okay. <laughs> Last time we have you on our podcast. That's fine. Um, yeah, so I just have a sparkling water, and then I'm drinking um, an Irish cream cold brew from Starbucks, which 
what we rated on a scale of one to ten is that what you said mm-hmm. all right my carbonated water is 10 out of 10 every time it's oh my god every time <laughs> and then i would say that my irish cream cold brew is like a little disappointing this time it just doesn't taste as good as normal i'd give it like a five out of ten mm, that's pretty bad it's like pretty really it's just like mediocre you know okay just with the caffeine yeah, exactly. It's serving a purpose. In summer, what are you drinking? Um, H2O. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Exciting. <laughs> um, we are still past the time of my caffeine ban, so it's just water for me. What time is your caffeine ban? Caffeine ban starts at noon. Oh, wow. I know. Are you having trouble sleeping? Well, I do if I drink caffeine past noon, but I haven't done that in years, so. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Anywho, Lexi, what are you drinking? I see you got a new one since our last segment. Yeah, I'm still working on my London Fog, but now I also have a Diet Pepsi, which I don't know why I bought that. I don't really like it that much. It's spicy. It's carbonated. It's very, I don't mind the spiciness. I just don't understand spiciness in water. I agree. You know I don't know what to understand. Like, if I'm going to drink water, I'm just going to have water. Nah. Doesn't it kind of hurt your throat after a while? Like, all no. the carbonation? And, like, your mouth? Yeah. It sure doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. I feel judged. I can leave. <laughs> Well, Heidi, don't you have like a soda stream? Is that how you drink so much? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's better for the environment because I'm creating less waste. So like mm-hmm. the water bottles themselves are reusable. So all I need is just water, and then the um, the cartridges to do the bubbliness are recyclable. So you like do an exchange program, so they reuse those bottles for the um, CO two tanks. And so I stopped using like cans and started going to a soda stream. And so how often do you have to refill these cartridges? I don't know. I think we do like, so I, my partner and I both have a slight addiction to carbonated water. And I think in our household, we probably go through like four every two weeks. That's a lot of trips to maintain this habit. You go to the grocery store every week. <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> I don't know why I have such an aversion to spicy water. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why you guys are coming down so hard on me about this. <laughs> I feel like I do. I feel like this segment's been partially sponsored by SodaStream, so thank you, SodaStream, for um, not giving us any money. <laughs> not giving us any money, <laughs> but we will, of course, talk about it, and Lexi will bash it, um, and maybe we should get back to our segment. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think people are probably done with hearing about this. Okay. Good. All right, so our next segment, we're just going to kind of review the overlap. Um, some of the biggest things that um, we can talk about in terms of women's health and um, psychiatry would be the difference between postpartum blues, postpartum depression, and postpartum psychosis. So we've kind of broken this up into each of us has kind of decided to look up each of these and kind of give the rundown on what it is, the prevalence, warning signs, as well as any potential treatment options. So who would like to go first? Maybe do you want to go in order of Severity. Severity, yeah. Yeah, so we can start with the least severe. So this would be postpartum blues. So I can go ahead and just give a basic rundown of that. So postpartum blues um, occurs in about 40% or more of women that have just given birth, um, which is a really large number in my opinion. That's kind of more, like before medical school, I knew this was something that existed. I just didn't realize that it affected this many pregnancies. So I think that's um, pretty pretty important to be aware of and also maybe to warn people of as before they give birth so that when they potentially do experience this that they can feel a little bit more like this is normalized and that it could be just a normal part of of the experience um although um, it isn't abnormal what 
Well, like on that note, like I think it's really important to talk about how common it is because I think a lot of mothers experience a lot of guilt Mm -hmm. because, you know, the period after having a baby, like people talk about how it's like the best time of your life. It's so exciting. Like how great you brought a child into this world. And a lot of times these moms like aren't experiencing that. And so I think it's like important to talk about so these moms don't feel so much guilt. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, so just so we are kind of aware, so 40% of women, it happens within usually a week of delivery. Um, so they, symptoms start developing like two to three days after delivery, peak after a few days. And then the key to postpartum blues is that they resolve within two weeks of onset. Um, and so beyond that, that kind of leads into Lexi's topic. So I'll let her talk about that more, but you want to remember that postpartum blues really shouldn't be lasting and beyond that two weeks of um, of onset. And so some things that you can kind of see clinically to make you think of postpartum blues would be sadness, um, crying, irritability, anxiety, insomnia, exhaustion, decreased concentration, as well as mood lability um, um, that may lead may include elation. And so I think it's kind of hard too is I have not had a baby, so I can't really speak to this too much, but I would imagine that just giving birth to a baby, you're going to be exhausted. Well, one, you know, the process of giving birth seems pretty exhausting, but then also you have a baby that you're now responsible for, your feedings, your, your probably your sleep schedules all whack and everything. So I'd imagine that also some of these symptoms, it's hard to tell like whether they're postpartum blues or if they're just like, I'm exhausted because I only got four hours of sleep last night and it was interrupted or whatever it may be. So I feel like that's kind of hard too. Is it like, is it blues or is it just kind of a culmination of all of this? Um, And so the pathogenesis is largely unknown. Um, We don't really know exactly why this happens, but um, some people believe that it's related to hormonal changes after birth and that later affect neurotransmitter levels. Um, something interesting I kind of came across in my research too is that postpartum blues can increase the risk of subsequent postpartum anxiety disorders by a factor of four. Um, and postpartum blues may thus represent a prodrome for depressive and anxiety symptoms. So I thought that was somewhat interesting. Um, and then just in terms of management, there's really only watchful waiting that we can do. Um, however, patients that, you know, if they don't improve, this could be a sign of something more severe and then it's maybe perhaps time to intervene. Um, and so even though the management is just watchful waiting, I think it's also important to have supportive people around you. And if you are, you know, aware of anybody that has postpartum blues, just um, perhaps do your best to support them and provide any help that they can have. What do you guys think? Have you any ideas to help people with postpartum blues? I think what you're saying is important. Like, there's a lot of benefit even just to supportive therapy of like listening to the mother, listening to what she's going on, um, going through, validating those experiences, trying to normalize what she's feeling in the sense of like, you're not a bad mom because you're not having like the best time of your life in this postpartum time period. And then really trying to encourage um, family support or whether that's, you know, the a parenting partner or a family or a chosen family or friends or whatever it is, like trying to help them find the words to ask for help and, you know, trying to help them find the terminology to ask for help or, you know, 
aiding in whatever process we can to support these mothers in a difficult time and trying to get them some actual sleep is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so next would be postpartum depression. And Lexi, I think you looked that one up. Can you tell us a little bit more about postpartum depression? Yeah. So when we move into postpartum depression, the incidence, of course, is a little bit lower than postpartum blues. So incidence is 6.5 to 12.9% or even higher and lower in middle income uh, families, uh, which to me, that was still pretty shocking that it is that high still for postpartum depression. So let's jump into definitions. So from the DSM-5, postpartum depression is a major depressive episode with peripartum onset if the onset of mood symptoms occurs during pregnancy or within four weeks following delivery. But depression that begins later than four weeks after delivery or does not meet the full criteria for a major depressive episode may still cause harm and require treatment. And just kind of building off of that a little bit as far as what the criteria are, what we should look for, uh, one of the main things is to make sure that we're not having symptoms of postpartum psychosis that would require a different treatment. And Heidi will talk a little bit more about postpartum psychosis once I finish up with this. But building off of that even more, so in clinical practice and in research, Postpartum depression is defined as depression that occurs within four weeks after childbirth or three months, six months, or up to 12 months after childbirth. And so symptoms that we should be looking for include sleep disturbance beyond what's associated with the care of the baby, which brings us back again to, is this postpartum depression? Is this postpartum blues? Or is this just normal changes associated with lack of sleep? We can also see anxiety, irritability, a feeling of being overwhelmed, um, as well as an obsessional preoccupation with the baby's health and feeding. Of course, we want to screen for suicidal and homicidal ideations as well, because of course those can have detrimental effects to, to the mom. And so one thing, you know, I think we saw a lot, at least I did on my exams and was asked about on the floors, was the strongest risk factor for postpartum depression which in fact is a history of depression in the past. And then so let's talk about treatment as far as what we should be doing for these patients and how it affects um, you know, their, their life and breastfeeding, things like that. So treatment for postpartum depression depends on the severity of symptoms and how much it's impairing their daily life. So mild depression can be addressed with psychosocial strategies like peer support and non-directive counseling. And then when we move into um, moderate depression, that's when psychological therapy is recommended. And then for severe postpartum depression is when we start to think of pharmacotherapy with SSRIs. Um, it's also important to note though that each of these treatments depends on the specific patient. You know, this is not a one size fits all type algorithm and we need to make sure that we're taking into account the individual goals of the patient and you know what their choices are for treatment moving forward. Also to mention, most SRIs, SSRIs pass into breast milk at a dose that's less than 10% of the maternal level and are generally considered safe for moms that do want to continue breastfeeding babies. Is there any one SSRI that is, you know, optimal or is it kind of just, you know, based on a patient situation? So my understanding is that... Um... And in these situations, we typically go necessarily for the one that has the most research behind it. And that doesn't always mean that it's the best one. It just means it's the one that we understand the most. So these are typically going to be our sertraline and our fluoxetine, which have the longest like 
longest standing base of research behind them. That's good to know. Thank you. And then something else that I kind of, I ended up using this on an away rotation. I don't know if you guys have also seen it, the Edinburgh um, postnatal depression scale. Have you guys ever given that to a patient? I've read about it, but never used it. So I I did it a couple of times um, when I was on an away rotation. It's a pretty quick form. It's basically just kind of, um, it's 10 questions and you, the patient can, um, what I would do is on this rotation, I would give them the paper and a pen and just say, take your time filling this out, go ahead and check these boxes. And then I would come back and then you can use the scale on the chart to see if they're at risk for postpartum depression. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting and something that perhaps you can do as a medical student if that's something they use in their office. Yeah, that seems like it would make a really big difference in trying to actually understand what symptoms patients are having. And mm-hmm. I like the idea of having them do it in private, too, and then coming back later. Yeah, exactly. Because it's also one of those things where, you know, I can ask you, you know, um, you know, something like I've been able to laugh and see the funny side of things. Do you, you know, how do you feel you agree with this statement? And I feel like that's kind of hard to answer somebody directly, but if you have time to just kind of look at a piece of paper and think about it, I think you tend to be a little bit more honest. Um, and so, yeah. I also think that their screening tools like this are really beneficial because sometimes people, especially people without a lot of medical literacy or background knowledge in mental illness, don't understand the symptoms of these things. So saying, you know, I've been able to laugh a lot, maybe they haven't even thought about it until they read the screener and they're like, I didn't even consider the fact that I haven't laughed since I've had my child. Like, mm-hmm. wow, that's that's something that's now standing out to me. So it helps kind of, instead of forcing them to find their own vocabulary for their symptoms or recognize their own symptoms, it helps kind of bring that to them. Yeah, and I think it makes it more relatable as well, you know, just to see on the paper that not being happy is something that people do experience and that it's a question that people are wondering about you and that people have experienced themselves, it makes it more accessible to actually admit to that and, you know, try to get help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Is there anything else you want to add on postpartum depression or should we move on to psychosis? Yeah, I think let's roll into psychosis. All right, cool. So postpartum psychosis is kind of um, not necessarily the sequelae of you know, how blues can often transition into depression or anything like that. It typically is its own area of problem or problem area. Um, However, like Lexi alluded to, one of the prodrome symptoms where we call them in psychiatry and the negative symptoms is that you can have a patient who has depression or presents with depression or some type of um, apathy And that could actually not be depression, but instead be a negative symptom of psychosis. So I'll get a little more into that. But before we get too far in, postpartum psychosis um, is a disorder where a person in the postpartum period starts to experience psychosis. So without using all of the words in the definition, um, it's when someone starts to have symptoms that we typically associate with psychosis, such as hallucinations, delusions, thought disorganization, bizarre behavior or bizarre or disorganized um, motor symptoms. So kind of we say like atypical posturing or like they are make, moving in a way that just doesn't seem natural. Um, so those are the, the big things that we're looking for when we think about diagnosing postpartum psychosis. And, you know, it's not super common, which is a good thing. It happens in roughly one to two in every 1,000 births. And it's most commonly going to happen in the first month post-birth. 
One thing to really keep in mind is that patients who already have certain disorders are at higher risk of postpartum psychosis. So somewhat intuitively, someone who already struggles with a psychotic disorder is at risk of postpartum psychosis. But maybe less intuitively for some people is that most, um, well, studies have shown that like roughly 50%, kind of like the majority in general of women who end up with postpartum psychosis either have been previously diagnosed with bipolar disorder or will be diagnosed with bipolar disorder in the future. So if you have a patient coming in who has bipolar disorder, it's really important that we're screening for postpartum psychosis. Um, but in the same vein, you know, it is idiopathic sometimes. So, so of those people who have it, it can up to 50% of them could have never had anything in the future, in the past, but that doesn't necessarily mean they won't have a diagnosis in the future. So that's really important to think about. Um, in general, when we're thinking about is the patient experiencing postpartum psychosis, you really want to look out and evaluate for sleep. So some sleep is an indicator for a lot of things in psychiatry. And when we talk about a person with bipolar disorder, especially, we always ask them about sleep because one of the first signs of mania is the patient stops sleeping. And it's kind of the same thing in postpartum psychosis. The first strongest um, factor that a patient might experience that leads to postpartum psychosis or is a prodrome to postpartum psychosis is severe insomnia beyond that that we would expect with the responsibilities of like being a new mother who's like breastfeeding or you know getting up in the middle of the night to feed their child whether they're breastfeeding or um formula feeding regardless insomnia that is like beyond what we would expect expect for a new mother so that's going to be a big one and then you might start seeing that they start isolating themselves they start having obsessions that go beyond like just the normal anxiety of motherhood, you know, they start having a persistent delusion that their child is sick, or sometimes they can have a delusion that their child is evil or trying to kill them. They might have hallucinations that they should kill their child or they're a bad mother, so they should abandon the child. Um, and you might notice that in these symptoms, a lot of these symptoms revolve around the newborn baby. And that's why this is such a uh, important thing to screen for because it puts both the mother and the baby at risk. So something we really have to be careful with in postpartum psychosis is the safety of the mother and the baby, which is why when we see postpartum psychosis in a patient or we recognize it, it's really important that we get the mother immediate treatment. And most of the time that's going to be in the inpatient setting. So getting this person to an acute inpatient psychiatric facility so that they can be hospitalized and stabilized in an environment where they are safe and their baby is safe. Because um, overall, everyone's safety is our biggest factor. And then when we talk about treatments, um, it can be tough. So there's a few different approaches to this. One of them is just going with an one of the older second generation antipsychotics because they tend to be safer and have higher efficacy. So these are going to be our quetiapine, our respiridone, olanzapine, um, instead of some of the newer ones that we think of. And then we want to see how they react to that. Most clinical experience and data shows that these are relatively safe in pregnancy and also in breastfeeding women. But of course, this is something that we have to consider and we have to talk to the patient's family about and talk to um, a parenting partner if there's someone that's co-parenting with this person about the baby. And then if these don't work or there's a strong mood component, meaning in addition to their psychosis, their hallucinations, their delusions, etc., there is some type of mood component such as mania, hyperactivity, hypomania, or depression, 
we might consider mood stabilizers. So the big thing here is that when we are considering mood stabilizers in a mother with postpartum psychosis, if the mother is not breastfeeding, we're going to go with lithium over Depakote because there's more research to show efficacy in postpartum psychosis. But if the mother is breastfeeding, we want to choose Valproate over lithium or Depakote over lithium because there's more data to say that that is safe in breastfeeding because there is a risk of lithium toxicity in babies through the breast milk, even though it's low. If there's, you know, any type of risk, we want to go with a safer option, and that's going to be Depakote in a breastfeeding mother. And then if the patient's not experiencing the mood symptoms of mania or hypomania, but they're having their psychosis with a severe depression, we want to consider an antidepressant or an SSRI, such as we had talked about earlier, fluoxetine, sertraline, one of our older SSRIs that has a lot of research behind it. And then as always, ECT is an option and it can be a really good option in women who are experiencing severe psychosis that's an immediate threat to their child or them or in a patient who doesn't respond well to psychopharmacology or a patient who um, has failed out of multiple treatments. So in the past, they've taken these medications and they haven't worked for them or they're in the hospital, they're taking these medications and none of these trials are working well for the mother. And ECT is safe during pregnancy, correct? Correct. Uh, I Don't quote me on it, but I'm actually pretty sure it's considered the safest treatment for depression in pregnancy. Interesting. Awesome. Thank you, Heidi, for sharing. I feel like that was so helpful to go a little bit more in depth about um, postpartum psychosis. Um, is there anything else you guys want to touch on in terms of postpartum and mental health, or should we move on to talking a little bit more about intimate partner violence? I think the big point here is just for anyone who's going to be treating new mothers to screen. It's so important to screen for these things because it's not something that someone's necessarily going to bring forth, especially when we talk about psychosis, because as someone's going into psychosis or having these thoughts, they might be ashamed of them and they might be too scared to tell you. So it's important to talk to the patient. And if the patient brings anyone with them to the appointment, you know, check in with them as long as the patient's okay with it. But really screen for these things. There is a screener for um, postpartum psychosis that I didn't talk about. So there are screeners available. Um, it's important to use them. It's important to like utilize any tools we have, especially just a good history. And so what's an example of something you would say to your patient directly to ask about, you know, postpartum depression? So, oh, postpartum depression? Or psychosis. Like, how do you introduce the topic? So I would, you know, try my best just to normalize it. So, you know, hey, a lot, or maybe not a lot, but hey, some mothers, in the, after they have their child, experience a sadness instead of what they would expect to experience, or sometimes they have a really hard time sleeping, or they have a lot of anxiety. Do you feel like you're experiencing any of these things? Like, is there any part of that that rings true for you? And then kind of same thing with postpartum psychosis, you know. Some mothers in the postpartum period experience, you know, hyperfixations that their child might be ill or that their child might be evil or that they're a bad mother or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, are you experiencing any of these things? Do any of these things feel true for you? That's a really good tip. So just normalize it with your patients and, you know, just bring it up and have a conversation about it. Exactly. All right. So let's maybe move into the topic of IPV and talk about what IPV is, how it affects patients, especially in the postpartum period, and how it relates to pregnant women in general. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I can get us started just um, in case anybody isn't familiar, IPV stands for Intimate Partner Violence. 
Um, and I think probably the most important thing to realize that I didn't necessarily realize before medical school is that this can really affect just about anybody. Um, it's found among people of all ages, all socioeconomic classes, ethnicities, gender identities, and sexual orientations. So I think um, sometimes we have this mental picture of, uh, um, you know, a woman in a heterosexual relationship as being the only option of being affected by IPV, but that's really not the case, and it, it should be suspected or considered in everybody. Um, and so, so we, now that we kind of know in general what IPV is, can you guys maybe give us um, some thoughts on what what maybe some signs that you could see in somebody that's um, you're concerned about IPV with? Sure. So I think it's also important to talk about how IPV comes in a lot of different forms. You know, you can have a physically abusive partner, a sexually abusive partner, an emotionally or mentally abusive partner who's yelling and screaming and degrading at their partner. Um, there's also, you know, financial abuse or what's called like reproductive coercion. So not allowing the use of contraception or trying to induce pregnancy without the other person really being on board with it. So in order to know what we were looking for, we have to know all the forms that come with it. Um, so when I, you know, am trying to screen for any type of IPV in a patient, you kind of look for the obvious signs first. Does this person have bruises in strange places? Do they have injuries in strange places that are in multiple stages of healing? Do they seem really guarded when they're talking to you? Um, I'm a big fan of screening and not just trying to observe. So I will ask patients, do you feel safe at home? Do you feel safe with your partner? Um, you can sometimes tell if a patient who was not once depressed has a new partner and now has a lot of anxiety or a lot of depression, you know, that can be a factor. When you bring up their partner, how do they react to their partner being brought up? You know, that's a big thing. If they get quiet, if they get defensive, um, if they seem to get nervous, like these are all things that we want to look for. Absolutely. And something you guys were talking about earlier when you screen for um, the postpartum psychosis or depression is kind of normalizing it. I think that's also comes into play here as well. I think normalizing, um, I mean, saying, you know, I know a lot of women tend to, you know, struggle with this at home. Is this something you are dealing with? What do you guys think or how would you word it? I fully agree. And I think even working, you know, building off what you're saying, working with people who have been victims of an IPV, some, especially new mothers, feel a lot of shame for staying in that situation. They're like, I can't believe I'm allowing this person to act this way around my child. Like, I feel like a bad mom because I'm allowing this to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important in that situation to kind of try to take the stigma out of it and ask directly, like, you know, a lot of women are in danger at home. A lot of women face, or a lot of people, like, like don't even gender it, um, a lot of people experience some type of IPV this happens most often after a person has been pregnant, you know, this happens in pregnancy. And is that something that you're experiencing? This could look like X, Y, and Z. And I think it's important to give examples so that they know you don't just mean physical violence. We're screening for everything. So, you know, have you ever had a part, has your partner ever hit you? Has your partner ever screamed and yelled at you in a point that you've been, you know, you felt unsafe? Do they ever, are they very controlling of your finances or where you are or, do they show up at places that you didn't tell them you were at? Things like that. And I think one of the really important things here too is making sure that you have an open line of communication with your patients. So even if you know a patient doesn't want to talk about something that's going on right at that moment or you know they don't want to do anything about it right at that time of their appointment, make sure they know that they can come back at any time, you know, call at any time to get help and 
you know, give some resources as well for who they can call and how they can get help if they do choose to get out of that situation. Absolutely. You don't ever want to shame someone for not wanting help because then they're not going to ask for help. And along the lines of um, shame, I feel like there's words that sometimes we use that maybe aren't the best words to kind of um, to use in these situations. Like I think a lot of times it's probably best to avoid things like de- victim or domestic violence, abused or battered. I think sometimes these have negative connotations that maybe could make the patient feel um, in like a, a judgmental place. Um, so I think, you know, instead you can use words like trauma or hurt or injured Um, So I think just like thinking about your language as well is something that can be helpful. I think that's super important. I think it's something that we all struggle with. And like, as long as we're aware of it, and I think I used the word victim earlier. So like, as long as we're aware of it and you keep working on it, like, I think that's a super important thing to consider. Absolutely. And again, screening is so important here, especially because of the really high incidence in IPV. So according to the CDC, about 41% of women and 26% of men have reported experiencing IPV at some point in their life. That is a really, really high number of IPV. Yeah. Wow. That's much higher than I thought. Yeah. So it's about one in three women and one in four men. It's insane. So in terms of screening, what do you guys think are the most effective ways? Do you think like a verbal screening, a questionnaire, um, have you guys come across any of this in your research as like what the best thing is to do? In my opinion, there's no over screening, right? So like if I'm going to have someone fill out, you know, cause they have all this re- paperwork that they do either on an iPad or a clipboard or whatever before the appointment. So like, what's the danger of throwing in a screener, right? Like we aren't going to induce IPV by asking about it. So ask about it in a screener. And then when you get in the office, I even sometimes will say to people, cause you know, of course people get annoyed when you ask the same questions over and over, but I would even say something like, Hey, I see, like, I saw your, the screening and the questions that we asked about IPV. I just want to double check with you just cause it is important. And I want people to feel safe talking about it. So, you know, is this something that you want to talk about? Is this something you experience? Is there anything on that paper that you want to elaborate or you want to change, et cetera? And one of the things to consider, too, is, you know, the role of a partner in the room. So if you feel that a patient is, you know, being shy or being really guarded and you feel that, you know, you might get more information from them, have had you had that conversation in private, you know, it's okay to ask your patient and say something like, you know, I speak to all my patients privately at some point during the encounter. Is that something that you would be okay with? Um, And asking them in private that same question to see if you're going to get the same answer and just making them feel more comfortable talking. And then consider what's going on with your patient as well. So, you know, some studies have shown between 7 and 20% of pregnancies experience some type of physical abuse. And people with unintended pregnancies or unplanned pregnancies have a threefold risk of physical abuse in pregnancy. So take into the factors of, you know, what is already going on in this patient. And then if your patient has is someone that you already expected had IPV, abused pregnant women are at a threefold increase for being um, you know, victims or of homicide. So like, this is something that's important to consider is like what other factors are playing a role here? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, ACOG actually recently came out with a statistic, right? That, um, Lexi, I think you shared that statistic with me. What did it say about, I believe it said that, um, homicide was the leading cause of death now in pregnant women. Oh yeah. So, yeah, um, they put out a, um, a bulletin the other day about that. Which is terrifying. Yeah. 
So definitely a very important issue to keep kind of thinking about and learning about and keeping on our radar as students and also as people that are going to be professionals screening um, patients. So um, it looks like we're getting kind of close to the end of the hour. Is there anything you guys wanted to add? No, I think we got a couple of really good perspectives here. Thank you, Heidi, for all of your perspectives from the more psychiatric viewpoint. I think it's really helpful to think about these things and, you know, just keep rehashing how important screening and normalizing symptoms is. Absolutely. Glad to help. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in. We will be back with our next segment. Um, In the next one, we are going to talk about um, mental health as you navigate medical school. So stay tuned.